Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. All right, we have been talking about the 12 apostles, um, and today we are talking about Philip. So a couple of things. Church tradition, we, we talked a little bit last week with Thomas about church tradition. Church tradition identifies Philip as a missionary to Greece, Syria, and Phrygia. Now, we talked last week with Thomas how there was some, some, some credence to what it said that he'd gone in India, that historically the documents we had seemed to indicate that may be true. There's actually churches there that identify themselves as coming from Thomas. We don't know if it's true, but there was some reason to think it might be. I'll tell you really honestly with Philip, this is pretty tenuous, this information. He may have been a missionary here, but this information comes from a document which is called the Acts of Philip, which is written, we know for sure, long after Philip was dead and written by somebody who never knew Philip and didn't have very much connection to Philip at all because Philip was long, long, long gone. It also includes within this story telling us that he ministered in these places. It includes a lot of stories that really strain the, the uh, credulity. Um, for example, there's one story in which Philip uh, actually slays a dragon. So it becomes a little bit questionable whether this is a document we should trust. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't give a lot of credence to that, but he certainly may have been a missionary in these places. That's possible. Philip is a Greek name. In case you're interested in it, it means lover of horses. I don't think that tells us anything about Philip. I don't think we can take from his name that he actually loved horses. I have no idea if he loved or hated or despised horses. Um, But the fact that it's a Greek name is interesting. Not terribly unusual, but it reminds us of something I'm going to take a moment to remind you of. Now, we've seen that some of the apostles have Greek names. Matthew has a Greek name. We'll get to his in a little bit. Cephas, Peter, is a Greek name. Um, Simon gets renamed Peter, but he's also called Cephas. Why is that? Well, what this reminds us of is that Greek was the dominating culture at the time that Jesus walked the earth. And it was so dominating, there's actually a name for people who were not of race or heritage Greek who adopted Greek culture. It's called Hellenism. And the whole idea is that the entire world was, was sort of Hellenistic in a lot of ways by the time that Jesus walked the earth. So Alexander the Great is a name we've heard of. And the truth is, he really was one of the most... Uh, if conquering is, is, was your goal for success, he was the most successful. He was one of the most successful people we've ever seen. He conquered the entire world, really as much as he could get to. He would have conquered more, but he died at 33. So he did all, all of this conquering before 33, and then he died of some stupid thing. We don't know what, probably pneumonia, overdrinking, something like that. And, but he died in his tent, and, and he was not done. He was going to keep going. So he really conquered the huge chunk of the world, and he brought with him all this Greek culture. So Greek art, and Greek literature, and Greek philosophy, and Greek poetry, and and Greek commerce, and just a whole Greek way of looking at the world. And when the Romans came along, after Alexander the Great died, his four generals took over, but they weren't as strong and powerful as him, and ultimately the uh, Romans took over. But when the Romans took over, they didn't supplant the Greek culture, they simply embraced it and expanded it. So the entire world is now very Greek, and and the influences of Greek culture are with us to this day. A lot of what we think of as Western culture or even American culture has a direct line back to this Greek culture. And I mention all that to say that you had among the Jews, the Jews were very, uh, their identity was very important to them. God had always told them to be Jews, remain Jews, stay Jews, be clear about your identity, you're my people. And so that was very important to them, and they held on to that, but... During this Greek dominance, there were many Jews who were what were called Hellenistic Jews. They adopted the Greek culture. Now, this was not in any way seen as kowtowing to the Romans, who were the oppressors, because it's not the Roman culture, it's the Greek culture. So you have a lot of Jews who have their Jewish heritage, but embrace along with it the Greek culture, called the Hellenistic Jews. And I mention all this to say, Philip may have been a Hellenistic Jew. He held on to his Greek name. We don't know of another name for him. So he seems to be someone who embraced that Greek culture on some level. That will become important to our story later, which is why I mention it now. But whether he loved horses or not, who knows? All right. There's a big question that comes up with Philip, and it's this. It's the question of whether Philip in the Gospels is the same Philip that we see in the book of Acts. There's a Philip in the book of Acts that's called Philip the Evangelist. And the, the truth is that for many years, the early church definitely thought, assumed, or believed that Philip in the book of Acts and Philip in the Gospels was the same Philip. 
If you read any modern commentary, they will tell you, most of them, that they think the early church was mistaken about this, and these are two different Philips. We're going to hold that question till about halfway through tonight, and then we'll, we'll explore that a little bit. We'll see what things happened to Philip in the book of Acts and see if there's any indication that we can get to. I, I'll, uh, spoiler alert, I don't actually know the answer to the question. He may be the same Philip or he may not be. So if you're wanting to get a definitive answer, you won't get that tonight. But I will give you some pros and cons of both. All right, yeah, Lorraine was going to leave. That's it. That's the only reason she came. Is he or isn't well, he? That and the horses thing. And, so and did he love horses? So yeah. not <laughs> revealing either of those tonight. Yeah, good. Um, so what we're going to do, though, to start with before we get to that question is we're going to look at the Philip in the Gospels. What are the things we know? And as I mentioned, John is once again the person who tells us more about him than anybody else. Philip appears in all the lists of apostles. He's clearly an apostle. Um, he's, he's important. He's one of those 12. He's with Jesus. Every event, you know, almost all the events that we read about in the Gospels, all the apostles were at. A few, only a few were at, and some of them, none of them were at. But most of the events... All of them were at. So anything, you can, all, you, can, you, can, you can recognize this influenced all of them, all right, whether we know about them or not. But Philip, we do have, thanks to John, three or four specific events that are mentioned about him. One of them, we already read. We're going to read it again. It's the calling of Philip. So we're going to see how that works. So it starts this way. It says the next day. Just to remind you, it's been a few weeks since we looked at this. The next day, what this is referring to is that John the Baptist was preaching about Jesus and Andrew and another disciple, probably John. Some people think, though, that it's actually Philip, but I think it's probably John. Andrew and another disciple are there, and John the Baptist points to Jesus as he walks by and says, there he is. That's the Messiah. That's the one we're waiting for. That's the person I've been preaching about this whole time. There's no reason to follow me anymore. My job is done. My job was to lead you, point you to this person. So we know that John and... and um, uh, yeah, John and Andrew, they go spend the day with Jesus. They, they hang out with him. The next day, Jesus calls Peter. He calls Andrew. He calls John. And it says here, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. I think there's every reason to believe this is not the first time Philip met Jesus. That's what we've seen the pattern is for most of these apostles. He's already met them. Perhaps, because we know that Philip and Andrew hang out. We'll show you that when we talk about Andrew next week. They're friends, I think. Because they have connections, perhaps Philip met Jesus with Andrew the day before. Perhaps he was there, he just wasn't mentioned, um, which is something that happens to poor Philip. So uh, the next day, though, it says, finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. So either you can read this, that Jesus decided to go find Philip, that he literally was looking for him, which is kind of a cool thought, or it could just mean he ran across him, right? Running across Philip, finding Philip, bumping into him, whatever it is, he says, follow me. And then it tells us this, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. So what is Bethsaida? Bethsaida is a little fishing village on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. All right? It's a good place for a fishing village is on a shore. Um, and that's where it is. And it's small. Bethsaida is interesting because not only do we have a number of apostles from there, Philip, Andrew, and Peter for sure, but Jesus hangs out there a lot. Jesus spends a lot of time in this little fishing village. And in fact, he does a surprisingly uh, large proportion of his miracles in this village, here in Bethsaida or very nearby. The feeding of the 5,000 takes place in Bethsaida. You might say, why were there so many people there? We'll see that in a second. Walking on water takes place on the Sea of Galilee as he's walking to Bethsaida. <laughs> and healing of the man born blind. These are some of the prominent miracles that happen in Bethsaida. So he spends a lot of time there. He's kind of prominent there. Um, uh, it's in Galilee, probably heard the term Galilee, Bethsaida is a fishing village in Galilee. All right, so anyway, that's where Philip lives. Jesus finds him there. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good from there come from there? Nathanael asked, come and see, said Philip. We're going to talk about Nathanael more another time and his response is very sort of negative challenging, aggressive, perhaps bigoted response here. But what I want you to note, and I want you to put a pin in this because we'll come back to this, but what I want you to note is how Philip decides to debate Nathaniel. Nathaniel comes off very aggressively. Philip has a lot of choices in his response. Notice what it is. Does he argue with Philip? 
I mean, with Nathaniel? No, he doesn't. In fact, I love the fact he doesn't do what some of us do when we argue, is he doesn't get distracted by the question that Nathaniel wrote. He doesn't sort of get into this debate about whether anything good comes from Nazareth, because he knows that isn't the point, right? He's not like, well, I can prove to you something good came from Nazareth. I had a fish there the other day. It was pretty tasty. I mean, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't go off on this tangent. He just decides... He just says, come and see. He doesn't debate him at all. He's not even like, well, yeah, that's a good point. Maybe he couldn't come from there. Or, yeah, the Messiah doesn't come from there. He's just like, just come, just come, just come see. Just come look. He doesn't spend a lot of time arguing with Nathaniel. Really, none at all. He just invites him to come see. All right, so hold that thought. We're going to come to it. We already know that story. Let's look at the next story that we see. Chapter 6, we run into Philip again. This one kind of makes me chuckle a little bit. I think it gives us a hint into Philip's personality. It even gives us a hint a little bit into Jesus' personality, depending on how you read this. So here we are. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. There's a reason it tells us this. The reason it tells us this is to explain why there's such a large crowd that shows up. See, this is a little fishing village, but everywhere around this village right now, Jews have come from all over the world. Because for the Passover festival, they are required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year. And they all come and they set up camp and they literally live in tents and they have this big barbecue. They do these sacrifices and they actually eat it together. It's part of the sacrifices are a big fellowship, a big barbecue. It's a great, it's, a, it's an amazing time. It's a whole week long, perhaps longer, depending on how you read things. But everybody's coming from around the world. So here we have people coming from all over the world and they see Jesus doing all these miracles. And where is he doing a lot of them? Bethsaida. And so they come, they're like, what is this guy doing, <laughs> right? Not only are these people that are coming that hear about Jesus, but they're religious people. They're people who take seriously enough their heritage as Jews to celebrate the Passover festival, to make the journey. So when they hear there's this guy who might be the Messiah and who's proving it by doing these amazing miracles, they all want to come. So that explains why there's this huge crowd, probably bigger than the population of Bethsaida, right? It's one of those moments where they attract thousands and thousands of people. So the, he goes up on a mountainside, he sits down with his disciples, and people start coming to hear. And the Jewish fest Passover festival is near. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him. So just picture this for a moment, right? They're sitting on the mountainside. Jesus knows this is going to happen. But I think he plays with Philip a little bit here. He looks up and there's this huge crowd coming. And they're just, they're just mammoth. There's just thousands of people. And he looks up and Philip is next to him. And this is what happens. And he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now listen to this next sentence. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Look, I think it's fair to say Jesus usually has in mind what he's going to do. He usually already knows what the plan is for the day. But he looks at Philip, but I see, I don't, we got to read this right. I don't think, based upon the reaction, based upon what happens here, that this is some sort of like severe test. This isn't like, oh, I'm going to test Philip, and if he fails, he's off the island. You know, no more, that's why we don't hear about Philip, because he failed this test. You know, that was it. No, I don't think it's that. I really read this with a twinkle in the eye. I think Jesus sees this huge crowd coming and he knows Philip. Now, I might be speculating a little bit and that's okay. Just go with me for a moment. You can, all, you can dial this back inside. I made all this up later if you want, okay? You can see what's here. But I'm trying to understand the text as it flows. I'm trying to understand what kind of test this is for Philip. Why is this a test and why Philip particularly? And I think based upon Philip's response, here's the way it reads to me. He looks over at Philip and he knows that Philip sees the huge crowd coming and he knows that Philip, practical, logistical Philip, is starting to freak out. Because here come this huge crowd of people to hear Jesus speak. There's no way they're going to feed them all. I think Philip is thinking this is the fire festival, right? This is the moment in our lives where we did not plan well and people are coming and it's going to be a catastrophe because we don't have enough food for all these people. Let's run. <laughs> Let's go down the other side of the mountain. Whatever Jesus is. I just think Jesus looks at him he sees he's starting to freak out, so he says to Philip the question that is in Philip's mind. He says, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And Philip has already run the numbers, because listen to his answer. I think he's like, I've already, I've already been thinking about this, Jesus. And here's the reality. Philip answered him. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. 
This is not a positive message. This is, we're in trouble, Jesus. We're in trouble. But see, Jesus already knows. He's already got it covered. He's not worried about it. He knows Philip is. So he's testing him a little bit. I think he's playing with him a little bit. He's tweaking him a little bit. He's like, what are we going to do, Philip? What are we going to do? Knowing already what he's going to do. And Philip's like, I don't know. <laughs> We're in trouble. And I think we do, I think, I think we see from this in some other places, Philip's very practical, right? Philip looks at the world and he sees what he sees and he's very practical. He just says, this is what we got to do. We got to feed these people and I don't know how we're going to feed them. Jesus, this is a problem. We should have thought about this, right? This is, this is going to be an issue. So I think that's kind of what's happening here. Now, it's interesting. The story goes on. The next person to speak is actually Andrew. We'll get to that when we talk about Andrew in a week or two, because it's interesting how Andrew responds as well. But this is, at the moment, Philip's just like, he's going through the numbers. How are we going to make this happen? And of course, you know the rest of the story. What happens is that Jesus takes the, the, the meal of a young boy, just a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread, and he hand, starts handing it out. And Philip must be watching him thinking, wow, Jesus, you're really smart about some things, but this is not going to work. <laughs> I mean, you're going to run out in the first few people and it's going to be a riot, right? And, and, then, and you took this little boy's meal. You know, this is not good. So, but as he watches, it just never runs out. As he watches, it multiplies. Suddenly there's more fish. Suddenly there's more bread. It would have taken half a year's wages to give everyone a bite. And by the time Jesus is done, not only did everybody get a bite, but they got full. And they got full so much that they had leftovers. And they had so many leftovers that when it's all over, Jesus picks up a basket and he walks over to Philip with a twinkle in his eye, Philip who was so worried about it, and he says, this is for you. There's enough left over for you to have your own basket. And of course, not only him, all the apostles ended up with their own basket left over for the next day. God not only provided the meal for everybody there, but he had leftovers for the apostles to enjoy the next day. And I want you to think about it. I mean, a, a free meal is a free meal, but think about the time. Think about the context, right? Philip's not a rich man. Uh, he's a fisherman. I don't know how much fishing he's been doing recently as he's been following Jesus around the countryside. He doesn't have a lot of food. A free meal is a big deal, right? I didn't mean to rhyme, but it works. It's a good slogan. A free meal is a big deal. <laughs> What's that? I don't know. It's a slogan for our family. So if you ask my kids, they'll tell you that we have a motto in the, in the McGill family, which is never turn down free food. And it is true. That is one of our mottos. There's, there's a lot goes into that. I know it sounds really simple, but uh, mostly it's that we like free food. But the other thing is that, that uh, I actually have another motto. The other motto for our family is be nicer to them than they are to you, meaning everybody. For some reason, that motto doesn't get remembered as often as the free food motto. It's not as fun. It's not as fun. <laughs> Anyway, in this case, the point is, though, this is a big deal. They, they get this free food, and, and it's left over, and Philip watches this amazing moment happen. He's there. He's, Jesus challenged him. How hard is this? So that when the miracle unfolds, Philip knows. He knows the numbers. He's like, I know what we went from. I, we went from this many loaves to this many loaves. I got it in my head, and I watched it happen. And he's probably, honestly, as he's taking his basket of food, in one level, he's thinking, that was the dumbest answer in the world I gave. But it wasn't, right? It really wasn't dumb. Logistically, practically, it was right. It was smart. Except that he's been watching Jesus for days now, months now. And Jesus has been doing all sorts of miracles all over the place. And, and it didn't occur to him that Jesus would do this thing, that Jesus could do this thing, or that Jesus would choose to do this thing. So it's another lesson. He sees another thing. After this, it's right after this, in fact, that Jesus takes a stroll on the Sea of Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, not on the shores. And he sees it again. He's like, wow, this is crazy. Jesus is doing things I never have seen before. Okay, so that's the second story about Philip, the second thing we see. Third moment comes up in John chapter 12. It says this, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Again, we'll get to Andrew in a couple of weeks. We'll see this little interchange about why Philip goes to Andrew first. We'll, we'll talk about that. But the real questions I have at this moment are, why? Why two things? First of all, why are Greeks going to this festival? Is it, is it a Jewish festival we're talking about here? 
It's not clear, but it seems to be. Why are they going to a Jewish festival? Number two, why do they go to Philip to ask to see Jesus, right? If you were to guess, if you were to guess who's the apostle that could get you to Jesus, who's the contact, you might think Peter, you might think James, you might think John, right? Yeah, who's the contact? Well, it's Philip. Why Philip? Why do they go to Philip? Well, I don't know the answer, but here's a couple thoughts. One is, along with Hellenistic Jews, that is, Jews who had adopted Greek culture along with their Jewishness, you also have converted Greeks. You have people who were Greek who have become Jewish, right? And so I think that's what's happening here. You have some Greeks who've converted to Judaism, so they're coming to the festival. But as they come, they, they don't actually know, they want to see Jesus. That's why they're coming. And they want to ask somebody that's close to Jesus, but as they think of all the people that are close to Jesus, they choose Philip and is it possibly because, in many ways, he runs in the same circles they do? Because he's a Jew who's adopted Greek culture, and they're Greeks who have adopted Jewish culture, so they overlap in a lot of areas. So perhaps that's why. So they come to him, and they say, we want to see Jesus, and ultimately, he leads them to that. But I also want you to see some themes that are happening here in Philip's life already. We see that when he talks to Nathaniel, he says, come and see and then when the Greeks come to him, they say, we want to come and see. And it's like Philip has become this go-between. He's become this guy that is the one who leads you to see Jesus. At least, not that he's the only one who does that, but he seems to be the few, very few instances we see him. That's what he's doing. That's part of what he's doing. All right. And then we come to John 14. Now, we've actually already read John 14. We read it last week, and we read about Thomas. This time, we're going to go a little further because Philip has something to say in the middle of this conversation as well. But I'm going to reread what we read last week to remind you what's happening and where we are. So here's what's happening. I'm going to give you even a little more context than I did last week. This is the Last Supper. This is the moment before Jesus' crucifixion. And he has just said some very distressing things, okay? The first distressing thing he said to the disciples was, I'm going to die. <laughs> he said it before. But now he's saying it's going to happen tonight. But he also said something else distressing. He said, you're all going to leave me. You're all going to abandon me. To which Peter said, we'll get to Peter later, but to which Peter said, not me, never me. To which Jesus said, before tomorrow morning, you will have abandoned me three times. You will have denied you ever knew me to three different people. So here they all the apostles. They're sitting there. They've just heard that Jesus is going to die. And they've also been accused of being unfaithful. And then Jesus says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. Yeah, thanks. He just said a bunch of stuff. It's very troubling. And now he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And this is where we talked about. Thomas asks the question everybody's thinking, which is we have no idea what you're talking about. And he says, you, he says, you know the place to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? To which Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. To which Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Now, there's an interesting thing about this. First of all, it shows that Philip's desire in his heart is good. I think it's almost pure. There's one thing he wants, and that's just to see God. That's all he needs. He says, if you'll just show me God, that'll be enough, right? Just show me Philip. Philip Philip's all about come and see. And it's like Philip is saying to Jesus, give me what I give to others, right? He says, you tell me you're the way to the Father. But it also shows that Philip misunderstands what Jesus said. And the reason he misunderstands it is because he's thinking of Jesus as a go-between in the same way that he, Philip, is a go-between to Jesus. People come to him, and he shows them the way. People come to them, him, and he shows them Jesus. So he says to Jesus, you say that you do the same thing for the Father. We come to you, you show us the Father. Well, do it. Enough talk. You're going on and on about rooms and places, and we don't know what you're talking about. But the truth is, Jesus, just show us God, and we'll be good. That's really all we've ever needed. It's all we've ever wanted. We don't need all this other stuff. So do it. Philip thinks, this is what I do. People come to me. I don't argue with them. I don't have philosophical debates with them. 
I say, come and see. Well, Jesus, you just said you're the way to the Father. We don't need to know where you're going. You're right. We don't need to know all the details. We don't need to know how it works. I don't care about any of that, says Philip. I just want to see God. But he's missing the point because Jesus wasn't saying he was a go-between between God and them. And that's what Jesus says. He says, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? <laughs> Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, Jesus looks at him and he says, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. You've been walking with him for months now. Don't you remember we fed the 5,000? Don't you remember I walked on the waves? That's God. Who else could do all that? I'm not just a go-between like you were with me. I am the Father. I am God. The Father and I are one. He goes on. He says, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. He says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say I am the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. He says to Philip, you've been living with me all this time. You don't really know who I am. I've been showing you all the time. You don't know who I am. You think I'm just a way to get to God. I'm God. I know. It's an astounding thing, Philip. And if you find that hard to believe, if you can't believe because you know me, at least believe because I've shown you the evidence over and over and over. See, this makes sense, I think, for Philip. Philip is a guy who's practical. And he's a guy who's, he's from the show me state. He's like, show me, show me. You don't believe Jesus is the Messiah? Come, I'll show you. Well, it's the same with Jesus. I'm telling you something amazing here, Philip. I'm God. And I've shown you. And if you can't believe it just because I say it, which fine. But then think about what you've seen. Think about what I have shown you. So I think we see a little bit of a theme here about Philip. And this is what we see of him in the Gospels. And as sparse as it is, I think we do get this theme showing, showing what, it, what it means to be Philip and how he views life and how he views faith. Out of the four short passages we have, two of them involve Philip showing someone else the Lord. And this last one shows him asking the Lord to show him God. He wants to see. He needs to see these things, and he wants to show people these things. In fact, maybe one of the reasons we don't see Philip a lot in the Gospels is quite simply because he didn't talk a lot. Have you thought about that? Why does Peter get so much text in the Gospels? Because he can't keep his mouth closed. Really, I mean, when we get there, you'll see, I love Peter. He's one of my very favorite people in Scripture. But he can't keep his mouth shut to save his life, literally. So, of course, we get, he gets all this text because he's always talking, but I think Philip doesn't talk much. You know, I mean, again, his whole evangelistic approach with Nathaniel is, come and see. Come, see. You know, no argument, no talk, just come, see. Right? The Greeks come. We want to see Jesus. Well, that's fine. Come. We'll figure it out. We'll get you there. He, I think he doesn't talk a lot. I think he is a guy of action, and I think he's a guy who likes to show things, and he's a guy who likes to see things, and, and he lives in this very practical world, which doesn't make him lack faith or lack spirituality at all. He has this commitment to Jesus, which is extremely admirable. His desire is pure desires to see God. That's a desire that God says will be fulfilled. But for him, he just wants to see it. He's not interested in having long, drawn-out arguments. So I almost picture him, I don't know if this is true, but I almost picture him in some of these long dialogues between him and Peter and the others. I just almost picture him kind of standing back going, can we get on with it? <laughs> What, what does this mean? What am I supposed to be seeing here? I think the other thing about Philip that I think is noble and should be noticed is that when he does talk and when he does show, he's never drawing attention to himself, which may be the other reason we don't see a lot of them in Scripture. You know, James and John, one of the things we know about them is mom said, put them at your right and your left hand. <laughs> Look at them. We don't ever see that in Philip. We don't ever hear of him doing that. We don't ever hear him like Peter saying, I will be committed forever. No, we don't even see that. Right? All we see is him saying, show us God or come see. 
He doesn't draw attention to himself. He's not interested in showing off himself at all, it appears. He's really just interested. It's always showing and pointing back to Jesus. So put a pin in that. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to that theme. But let's deal with this question about Philip in the book of Acts for a second. So to start with, let me, let me be really clear, because I think this is really important. If you go to any modern commentary right now, they're going to tell you Philip is definitely two people. But, but we've got to start before that. And we have to take seriously something that happened. And that's that very, very, very early on, the church believes that Philip in the book of Acts and Philip in the Gospels were the same Philip. And you've got to ask why. And we're talking in the first century. And anything that happens in the first century is really very close <laughs> to the actual people. That in the first century, there are writings that seem to believe that Philip is the same apostle and in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Now, there's good reason to question that. We'll look at that in a second. And maybe it's true. Maybe the modern commentators are right that the early church was mistaken, that they were incorrect. It could be. There's nothing here, by the way, that's going to change our faith. When we get to heaven, we'll either see two Philips or one. Actually, I hope there's a lot of Philips. I don't think other Philips are <laughs> denied entrance. But, but we're either going to see these two Philips or we're going to see they're the same. And it won't change a whit of anything, right? So I don't, I don't want to say it's that. But the early church believed he was. The modern commentators believe he's not. And I just want to take a look at the things that happened. If it is, we're learning about the various apostles on the possibility that it is the same as Philip the apostle. Let's see what he does in the book of Acts. Then we'll draw our themes together. We'll close there. I won't give you a definitive solution as to whether it's the same Philip or not, but I will give you some food for thought, I hope. Okay, so here we go. Philip is mentioned in Acts four times. We're actually not going to start with the first one. You'll see why at the end I want to come back to the first one because it's the one that causes the question about whether it's the same Philip or not. So let's leave that for a moment and let's just look at the other things we see. So here we go. In chapter 8, it says this. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So here's what's happened. The, the apostles were told by Jesus, you're going to start in Jerusalem and Judea, and then you're going to end up preaching the gospel to the farthest ends of the earth. And whether they were slow to move their feet, or it just was God had a plan, and this is the moment it happened, the truth is they stay in Jerusalem and Judea up until the moment when the Romans force them to scatter. So they're in Jerusalem, and they start getting persecuted. The Romans start deciding this weird offshoot of Judaism is becoming dangerous. They start believing that they're talking about other kingdoms, and, and they're starting to believe that maybe they're going to overthrow or try to overthrow the Romans. It's not true. In fact, the book of Acts, I believe, is written largely to make the point that Paul never intended to overthrow the Roman government, and they should relax. <laughs> I really, I think that's part of why it's written. It's almost a legal brief to, to, to get Paul out of prison, I think, which is where he is, where he is at the end of Acts. So I, I think they're wrong about that, but they're concerned about that. And so they begin to persecute the Christians. They get really brutal about it. And as the persecution begins, you have all these people that have collected in Jerusalem, many of whom don't live in Jerusalem, but they've just hung out there because the church is doing amazing things and they're part of it. And when the persecution comes, they scatter. Some of them probably just going back home, okay? And some of them just running. And so they scatter it, but it's, it's really cool. You know, when you think about things scattering, if, if you had like a, a rope and you unraveled the rope and you took it apart into its separate strands, that rope becomes weaker by doing that. It's no longer as strong. And this is what the Romans would have hoped would have happened when they scattered the church, but that isn't what happened. When they scattered the church, it was more like a living organism or water, where as it spreads, it just makes more things wet. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or, or almost like an amoeba, that as it, as it spreads, it multiplies. And so by being scattered, the church actually becomes much more strong, much more powerful, much more prevalent all across the Roman world. So those who have been scattered preach the word wherever they want. That's why. Because even as they're running, they're preaching the gospel. Okay? Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all played, paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks and pure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. If you want to read this story in chapter 8, it goes on. It's got this really interesting and peculiar story about a guy named Simon the sorcerer who is so attracted to Philip's power that he likes to pretend he's a Christian and try to gain the power and ends up instead being tormented by demons. It would make a great movie all on its own. Um, but I want to focus on Philip here for a moment. So a couple of things. One is, just notice a couple of things. If this is Philip in the Gospels, there's a couple of things that match him. 
Number one is, before he preaches, what does he do? He shows, right? Before he preaches, he shows. He's like, look, I saw Jesus do all these signs and it finally realized he's God because of the signs he did. Let me show you the same signs of the same miracles. As God gives it to me, I give it to you so that you can see Jesus. You can't see Jesus now. He's gone back to heaven, but I can show you what I can show you. And it's because of the miracles he does that they listen to what he said, which is very Philip-like, right? It's just like, let me just show you. It's very practical. The other thing is where Philip is. So he's gone to Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the country, the area where the Samaritans live. Samaritans are Jews, but Samaritans were Jews who had very unorthodox theology. And they were bitter enemies in some ways because of that unorthodox theology of more orthodox Jews. They didn't know if they really even should call them Jews. The other thing about them is there's question about their, the purity of their, their like, um, what do you call them in uh, Harry Potter? Muggles. Yeah, there's question about the purity of their blood, right? Are they really Jews or are they kind of have they are they kind of hybrids and they mixed with too many other people? Truth is that had happened to the whole Jewish world, so it's really unfair to blame that on the Samaritans. But but that was the take, right? That was the picture they had. Jesus has already shown the apostles that the Samaritans can be taught the faith and the gospel. Remember the woman at the well was a Samaritan and they already have done some of this. But the point is for Philip to go to Samaria as sort of his choice of evangelism puts him on the edge. Nobody's preaching to the Gentiles yet. Paul is really the first one to do that. And for him to go to the Samaritans and embrace them as as wholehearted members of the way, which is what Christianity was known as at this point, to embrace them as the way, it shows that Philip is willing to kind of go outside his cultural comfort, which if he's a Hellenistic Jew makes a fair amount of sense. He's already there. (laughs) he's already sort of, you know, cross-cultural. And so it kind of makes sense that he might be the guy that would go to Samaria and find some success there. All right, here's the other thing, though, that should be pointed out. Before this passage, and I didn't leave this out to fool you. I'm going to tell you what I left out, but it just was a lot that I didn't want to read. Before this passage, it tells us that everyone scattered except the apostles, which which leads to the question of, well, then, if Philip is an apostle, why did he scatter? So maybe what that means is he's not an apostle, right? He's one of those who wasn't an apostle. But that's not conclusive because after this passage, guess who shows up in Samaria? Peter. And we know he's an apostle. <laughs> and James. And we know he's an apostle. So it isn't like they never left. It doesn't mean they never traveled outside of Jerusalem. It just means they didn't sort of permanently leave. So it's possible Philip, as an apostle, went to Samaria. Then Peter and James followed him. It's not conclusive that he couldn't be an apostle based upon that statement. But out of fairness, I throw that in for you. All right. Okay. That's one, one example we see. All right. Let's go on to another example in the book of Acts. So... Then, and this is, we know this is the same Philip as the one who was in Samaria because this story is just a continuation. Again, we don't know if it's the apostle, but here's what happens next. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. So this is an official who's in charge of the, 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 the he's the secretary of treasury for the queen of Ethiopia. That's what this means. Now, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. What does that tell us about this Ethiopian eunuch? He's either a Jew or a converted Jew. Otherwise, why? no reason, right? So he's, he's very possibly a Jew. Ethiopians actually have a long history. Um, they claim, in fact, their history goes back to Solomon, that they are direct descendants of uh, Solomon, that the Queen of Sheba and Solomon actually had children, and they believe their kings are some of those children. Certainly not impossible. Solomon had an awful lot of children with an awful lot of women. The man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Again, a a Jew. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you were reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as the lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? It's important to understand, this is not a unique question to the Ethiopian. In fact, this is a question that Jews were asking all the way up to the time of Jesus. 
And here's why. If you read the book of Isaiah, it's a really good question. Isaiah makes these prophecies, and sometimes he even talks in first person. This one is in third, and sometimes he talks in third person about himself, and sometimes he talks in first person, and it may not be about himself, and it's not always clear. As you read Isaiah, you're like, is he talking about himself? Or is he prophesying about someone else? And it really isn't always clear. And so the eunuch is like, I really want to know. <laughs> what is happening here? Well, here's what's interesting. If this is Philip the apostle, he's actually seen the actual fulfillment of this prophecy in Jesus, right? He hasn't heard about it. He's seen it. He's watched Jesus walk like a lamb to the slaughter. He watched Jesus tell his apostles, don't fight on my behalf. Put your sword down, Peter. He watched him walk meekly and be abandoned by everyone. He watched him deprived of justice and he watched his life taken from him. So when, he's, when the Ethiopian asked him that, Philip, if he's the apostle, is like, well, that's definitely Jesus. <laughs> and let me tell you why I know that. Because this is what I saw. This is what I experienced. Now, if he's not the apostle, he heard about it. Same thing. But it's interesting to think that what's happening here, even as Philip is about to explain scripture to this man, it still comes back to something Philip's seen. And it comes back to Philip showing this Ethiopian eunuch what he's seen to the best he can without actually going back in time. Goes on, it says, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Beat me up, Scotty. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all, all the towns until he reached this area. I love that little soft miracle there that he just, he's done baptizing and Jesus is like, that's good. That's all I needed there. And I'm in a hurry. You're over here now. And it's Okay. It's the only instance of teleportation miracle that I can remember in scripture. Although Jesus did pass through the locked doors. So maybe that was another one. But I love this too. If again, this is Philip the apostle. I love the practicality of this. Both the practicality and the visual orientation. What is baptism? We're actually going to talk about baptism when we're done with this series. We're going to talk about some of those ceremonies and why they're important. But baptism is essentially this. It's a visible way to show to which community you belong. It's a visible way to show where your allegiance lies. You are it wasn't something that was originated with Christians or even with Jews. It was something that you did to say, this is the person I will serve. This is the community to which I belong. And so to be baptized in the name of Jesus is to say, Jesus is my leader. He's my Lord. He's the one I follow. He's the one I'm a disciple of. And so they're, they're walking along and there's just water. And I don't think it's a puddle. I used, for some reason, when I read this text for years, I always thought it was just like a ditch with some dirty water in it. But that, that makes no sense. I suspect this is a small body of water that they actually drive by. And so they, they, they're going by this small body of water. And the eunuch's like, look, there's water. And Philip says, great, let's do this. And there's something very practical about that. It's just like, we don't have to wait. We don't have to stand on ceremony. We don't have to get a whole bunch of people together. It doesn't have to be on video. It, you don't, you know, you're not pledging yourself to me or to my church, Philip's not starting a church here, you're just pledging yourself to Jesus. We can do it right here, right now, let's just do it. And there's something about that, that practical Philip we met in the Gospels that might be reflected in this. Okay, so that's another story, very interesting story about Philip. One more little incident before we go back to where it all begins. So Luke, uh, at a certain point, joins Paul in the book of Acts. And when he does, he starts writing in, in plural first person. He starts saying, we, we did this and we did that. In fact, it's the only reason you know that Luke joins Paul. He doesn't mention that he joins Paul, but all of a sudden in the middle of the book of Acts, he stops saying they and starts saying we, and you're like, oh, I guess he joined them. So he did. And this is what he says in Acts 21, eight through nine. He says, we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for the day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I don't know if my daughters are prophets, but having four daughters who are prophets sounds like a handful. I'll just say that. <laughs> just, it's just this thrown in here that Paul and Luke, they know, Philip's a, a, someone they know. They go, they stay at his house for the day, right? Makes perfect sense. It's just a friendly thing. What's interesting is the way Luke identifies Philip. And this is where we get into the possibility of the strongest argument of why Philip may not be an apostle. Just notice that Luke identifies Philip in two different ways. Neither of them are that he's an apostle, right? He says he was Philip the evangelist. 
And he says he was one of the seven, which we'll get to in a second. And what's interesting is, if he's Philip the Apostle, and you want to identify who this Philip is, why wouldn't you just say that? Everybody knows who the apostles are. Why wouldn't Luke just say he's Philip the Apostle? Why would you emphasize these lesser things, in a sense, that he's an evangelist or that he's one of the seven? One of the seven, just say he's one of the twelve. And that becomes, that leads into the argument for why, why Philip may not be an apostle, but it also leads into my explanation of why it still might be. So let's go back to Philip. Philip. Let's go back. It's not Philip. There is no book called Philip. Let's go back to Acts. And this, I believe, is chapter six, I think. I did not put the reference in here. You can look it up. Here's what it says. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, so this is back before Philip goes to Samaria. This is back before he becomes known as the evangelist. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. What are we saying here? Let's understand what's happening. Who are the Hellenistic Jews? They're people either one of two things. They're either people, Jews who have embraced the Greek culture and live as Greeks, but are also Jews. Or possibly they're converted Greeks. Some people think it may be a reference to Greeks who have been converted to Judaism. Okay? Um, either way, what's happening is you have Hellenistic Jews who have embraced the Greek culture, and you have Hebraic Jews who have stayed very pure to the Jewish culture. And what happens is there becomes a, a, a concern that they're not being treated fairly and equally. So the distribution of food to widows is something the church was doing very early on. James later says that true religion is feeding widows and orphans, taking care of people. Paul gives all sorts of instructions about how we should take care of widows in our churches and orphans in our communities and, and, and widows in our communities. And so it's a really important thing that the church does. And so they're doing it really early on. And because of the times and the culture, there were probably a lot more of them, okay? And a lot of young widows, and so you have all these widows, and some of them are Hellenistic, and some of them are break, and it says daily allotment of food. So they're actually collecting enough food and money and income from the church to distribute food to all of these widows every day, except the Hellenistic Jews aren't getting their fair portion. Maybe they're not getting any. It's not clear. But what's happening is they're being overlooked. There is a soft bigotry or distinction being made. I don't think anybody sort of specifically said we can't feed them, but I think what happened is when it came to priorities and handing out the food until it was gone, somehow they kept leaving out the Hellenistic Jews. They didn't rise to the top. And so the Hellenistic Jews reasonably say, hey, come on, guys. We got widows. Help us out here. We're part of you. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together. When it says gathered all the disciples, that doesn't mean the apostles. It means they gathered everybody. However, you know, however many would come to this big town hall meeting of this large church at this point. So they gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, let's be clear. I don't think wait on tables here is meant as a, as a diminishment. I don't think they're demeaning waiting on tables. In fact, I think we should stop and take note of the fact that the way they responded to the critique, the way the apostles responded to the feedback that they were not fairly, because they're in charge the way they responded to the feedback that they're not fairly treating everybody was not to dismiss it. It was to say, this is important, they're right, and on top of that, we have failed to do it, and on top of that, we don't think we're going to be the best people to do it. So when they say we shouldn't neglect the Word of God, this is also really important. Let's understand, what we understand today about Scripture, about doctrine, about the Gospel is because the apostles were faithful to their main job, which was to pass on the teachings of Christ. That's what he told them when he left. This is your job. Teach them everything I've commanded you. He didn't say at that moment, feed all the widows. Now, clearly, teaching what we've, I've commanded you means taking care of each other. So that's where that came up. But the apostles are right. They have a job to do. And their job is to hold on to the word of God, to pray that they get it right, and to make sure that they continue to present it to people in accurate ways. And what they realized is because we're trying to do that and we're trying to feed the widows, we're not, we're not treating the widows right. So their conclusion was, well, we shouldn't stop doing what we should, we're doing, but we shouldn't use that as an excuse either. We need to fix this. So they say to the people, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. I think this also shows you that this is not just waiting on tables. They weren't like, pick seven men among you who can balance a tray well. They said, find men full of the spirit and wisdom. People who walk in character, integrity, 
have the Holy Spirit leading them, and they're wise enough to figure out how to administrate this well so that no one gets left out, and so it's not unfair. We turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. Hellenistic Jews, Hebraic Jews, they're like, good solution. We'll pick them in, they'll take care of it. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He gets special mention in this list. I think that's because the very next story is about how Stephen is the very first Christian martyr. Well, they just want to honor him. But the truth is they're all full of faith in the Holy Spirit. That was the criteria, right? I don't think they mean he was full of faith in the other six. Eh. They're all good. So then it says, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Interesting that they include in this an actual Greek who's converted to Judaism. Why? Because he's a good representation to make sure the Hellenistic Jews are not left out. He's going to stand up for those of the Greek culture. And maybe, just maybe, there were even specific cultural reasons that they were being left out. Maybe there were certain foods or certain approaches or certain ceremonies that made it harder for them to get, and this convert would understand that. But it's also interesting that we have Philip, who potentially by his name is a Hellenistic Jew. Himself, who would also relate. Okay, so here's the thing. On the one hand, it seems pretty clear, and here's the argument that modern commentators make. Clearly, the apostles said, we need to appoint different people to do this so that we can focus on what we're doing. Which makes it seem to make sense that the seven cannot be apostles because why on earth would you say, we're going to focus on this and then have one of your own people be one of those seven? I think that's a good argument. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I would buy it 100% except for one thing. You got to ask one question. Why was the early church so dumb? I mean, they knew this text. And they still thought Philip was an apostle and one of the seven. Why are they so dumb when we're so smart? We read this text and it's clear to us an apostle wouldn't be a deacon. that We call these deacons, by the way, deacon is never in this passage, but this is where we draw the idea of deacons from. Deacon just means servant. But we say an apostle would never be an apostle and a servant waiting tables. That can't be right. To us, it seems obvious. It seems clear. But the early church had the same text. It's not that they didn't know this. Somehow they read this and still believed that Philip could be both an apostle and one of the seven. And here's what I wonder about that. I wonder if it's our own cultural bias and our own tendency to place too much emphasis on authority as a position. I wonder if for us, we just see this as a demotion. And we're like, for the apostle Stephen, I mean, the apostle Philip to be a, one of the seven would be such a demotion. Poor guy to go from one of the 12 to one of the seven. That can't be right. But what if it's not a demotion in their eyes at all? What if the early church wasn't hung up on this idea that an apostle couldn't be a servant? What if the early church understood that apostles were servants in ways we don't? What if in our core, we just wrestle with that so much that it just seems impossible? In fact, what if when Luke points out that, that Philip is one of the seven, he does so because to him, that's more important a distinction, a more familiar thing for the people of the church than saying he was an apostle. What if they just saw it that way? Because it's not impossible that as they looked around and the people were sold to choose who they wanted, is it impossible that the people looked at Philip and went, you know, Philip's a practical guy with good logistic skills who's just always serving people. He's always showing us Jesus and what he does. We want him to be in it. If it's this important to you apostles that this is taken care of, we want you to give us one of your own. Is that impossible? It's not impossible at all. Is it impossible that Philip himself is like, hey, guys, I know we're supposed to be focused on the word, but boy, you know where I think I really shine? Feeding people. You know who I learned that from? Jesus. I watched him feed 5,000 people once. <laughs> I mean, he showed me he can do it. And I want to have the faith to do it. That's not impossible at all. And so I think it is possible that we're just confused about it for the mere reason that we get hung up on the idea that it's a demotion. And in Philip's mind, it wasn't a demotion. And in the apostles' mind, it wasn't a demotion. See, I think in the apostles' mind, it wasn't like they were saying, we're the most spiritual people, so we're focused on the word of God. Find people slightly less spiritual and let them wait on tables. That's not how they saw it. They said, find people full of the Holy Spirit, as full as we are. Find people full of wisdom, as wise as we are. But find people whose job just happens to be different than ours. 
whose gifting is different than ours, whose role is different than ours. This is a problem in our culture. We identify leadership and authority by the gift rather than by anything else. And so we think that it's the great orators and the great managers, the great business leaders who are the ones that can lead our churches the best. And God says in scripture, find men full of the spirit and wisdom and faith. And he also says, it is not true. I have every reason to tell you the opposite of what I'm about to tell you. So bear that in mind as I say this. It has never been true in any church I've pastored that you can say with confidence, the pastor is the most spiritual person in the church. I just don't think that's the criteria. Now, should a pastor have some maturity? Yes, that is one of the criteria. (laughs) There should be some maturity. There should be some spirituality. There should be some character. But it never, ever, ever anywhere says they must be the most mature member of the church. They should be the most spiritual. They should be the most wise even. It doesn't say that. It just doesn't. So anyway, let's let's wrap up. I don't know from all that if Philip is in fact the same Philip in in this Acts or not. And again, it won't really matter that much. But now you know the story of two Philips or one Philip you can put together however you want. They're both interesting characters, or he is one interesting character, however you want to say it. Okay. But I did want to also just give us that thought that we get hung up on titles in a way that makes this, I think, a little more confusing for us than maybe it has to be. And maybe that's why the early church didn't see that as proof that Philip was not the same guy. Now, I would guess they also felt they had other reason to believe he was the same guy, to override even the somewhat weirdness of it. Okay. Having said that, let's now look at the lessons from Philip. And we'll do this quickly. The best argument for Jesus is to show people Jesus. This seems to be Philip's main lesson. When people want to learn about Jesus, his answer is, here he is. Come see. Come and see. In fact, he does this with Nathaniel. Come and see. He does this with the Greeks. Come and see. He does this perhaps if he's in Acts with his miracles with the Samaritans. He does it with the Ethiopian. The guy's like, who's this about? He's like, what's Jesus? Come and see. Right? He uses what he has to show Jesus, whether it's scripture or miracles or the actual physical presence of Jesus. What he's always doing is pointing people back to Jesus. And in fact, I think this is such an important message of Philip's that I don't think we should look for other lessons. In fact, let's fix that. (laughs) There really is only one lesson from Philip. Those of you who aren't watching the screen don't know what just happened. There's really only one lesson from Philip, and that's the best argument for Jesus is to show people Jesus. And I think that's a really good lesson for us. And and I would say you can even bring that down to two things, show and Jesus. See, maybe to uh, quote Aaron Burr, talk less. Not really quote Aaron Burr, only according to Lin-Manuel Miranda. (laughs) But maybe... Stop talking quite so much and start showing. And I think even in our culture, it's particularly important because people are skeptical of smooth talkers right now. Have you noticed that? If someone speaks really well and makes a really good presentation, it almost earns them (laughs) anti-credence. It's like people are like, who's too smooth? Don't like it. And, And they have some reason for that. They've heard a lot of smooth talk about Jesus from people who ended up not showing Jesus. They've had a lot of conversation about Jesus and a lot of argument about Jesus and a lot of lectures and essays and and apologetics about Jesus. And it's all good, but it's not all good when what we've been showing them is the wrong face of Jesus. So maybe what we do need to do is be like Jesus, like Jesus, and like Philip, and show Jesus. But that's the second thing. We've got to make sure we show Jesus. Because I think the other thing we get hung up on doing in churches is showing our own self-righteousness, is showing our principles, showing our stands, right? How often do we hear people talking about how bravely they're standing up for Jesus and somehow all I hear is, I'm supposed to look at how bravely you are standing up. And the for Jesus becomes a side note. (laughs) Show me Jesus. Don't show me you standing up for Jesus. Show me Jesus. Show me him. Keep pointing people to Jesus. That is always and forever our job, church. That's why we exist That's it, is to show Jesus, to point to Jesus. That's why, again, Philip didn't draw attention to himself as much as he did to Jesus. Show Jesus, point to Jesus. I had some friends years and years ago, they left Real West Community Church when I was pastoring there, 
And they went to gospel for Asia. They went to be missionaries in Asia. Left on really good terms, because that was a really good reason to leave. And as they went, they said something to me, which I treasured. I think of, it talks about Mary treasured things in her heart. I've treasured because, frankly, it was great to hear that that's what they had gotten from my sermons. But it also has been something I've remembered forever that always kind of, it's become my North Star in sermons. And they said this to me. They said, thank you so much for always pointing us back to Jesus. That's our job. That's what we do. And it doesn't even matter what your other agenda is. I mean, you can have your other agenda, but the answer is always Jesus. I know that sounds so trite, but at this moment, it's really true. What's the most loving thing you can do for others? Show them Jesus. What's the most powerful thing you can do for others? Show them Jesus. What's the most faithful thing you can do for others? Show them Jesus. Everything you do will be multiplied in power and love if you keep showing them Jesus. But what does that mean? We don't have the advantage that Philip had. We can't take someone by the hand and walk him over to the physical Jesus and say, here he is. So that leads us to another core tenet of focus, and we'll close on this. Peter says this, another one of the apostles. He says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. He uses this phrase, stewards of the manifold grace of God. He's saying that there's this grace that comes from God. And, and to keep it simple, grace is a character quality of God. It belongs to God. It's not just something he does, it's something he is. And I think one of the best ways, it's probably infinite in scope, one of the best ways to understand it is that it is both the desire and the power of God to do good for you, to you. He has the power to do anything he wants for you. And he has the desire to do it. And those together are his grace. You can't change it by being a louse. And you can't change it by being perfect. Because it's infinite already. And it's part of who he is. And that's amazing enough to understand that the gospel teaches us that God's power and desire to do good to us is unflinching and unchanging and unchanged. But it gets even more amazing when Peter says that God takes that grace and he gives you a stewardship of it. Like he gives you a stewardship of money or a stewardship of time. He takes a slice of it and he says, this is yours, but it's not yours. It's for you to use so that you can bless people with the power and love of God. As each one has received a special gift, everybody, says Peter, has received a special gift. And you should employ it how? In serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold, it's like multifaceted. It's like a diamond. Picture a diamond that sparkles from every direction. The light comes off it no matter where you shine on it. The light is everywhere. You take one little facet of that diamond off, it's not near as impressive. But altogether, it just shines and radiates. It's impressive. And that's what he says about the manifold grace of God. It's multifaceted. So much to it. Paul says that as we minister to each other, we reveal the fullness of Christ. As we minister with these special gifts, this stewardship of grace, we reveal the fullness of Christ, but not only the fullness of Christ, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Picture a bathtub, which is not, we say a bathtub is full of water when there's still room at the top, because when you get in the bathtub, it'll overflow if there's not. But picture of a swimming pool, which is not leaving any room at the top. Picture it as a plain, it looks like glass. It's just completely full all the way across. That's the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It's not just being full like a swimming pool's kind of full. It's full to the point there's no room for anything else. And he says, we reflect the fullness of Christ. And it's very telling that Paul says, we only do that as a community. You cannot reflect the fullness of Christ. I am sorry if I or any other pastor ever said to you, you are the only Christ people see because it's nonsense because you cannot be the only Christ people see because you aren't enough. But we can be the fullness of Christ. We can be the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We, as we serve with the stewardship of God's grace, together can show Jesus. That's what Paul says. 
And that's how we do it. And that's how we show Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Show people Jesus. Discipleship happens as we share our stewardships with each other, which is why we believe this happens best in small communities where people learn to love and learn to share that special grace that they have with each other. That special shifting dynamic grace which cannot be discovered simply by a spiritual gifts test, but can be discovered by living in community of love where sometimes you mess up and sometimes you get it right. And when you get it right, the power and blessing of God is anointed and it flows to people and they see Jesus. So I just want to close with this verse that Peter writes as our benediction. And I'll just read you the whole verse. I'm reading it from the New American Standard, which I usually do from the NIV, but I happen to have written a song about it, so it's in my head memorized in New American Standard. I won't sing it to you, I will just quote it. As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him serve by the strength which God provides, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever Amen. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.